The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. You're listening to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. This is the not quite dulcet tones of Matt Tebby, and I'm joined by mm. Ben Strinky. What qualifies as dulcet? Does this is this approaching dulcet? I don't think you're saying it correctly. Dulcet. I think it's dulcet. D u l c e t. You looking it up? I'm looking it up. Dulcet. Yes, d u l c e t uh, is an adjective, and it means sweet and soothing. Dulcet. What does dulcid mean then? I don't know if that's a, you can't just make up words. I do it all the time. Unless you're a celebrity. Dulcid. Nope. Dulcid isn't even a word. That's incredible. I've got it in my mind as a word. Mm, you're going to have to take that up with Webster. Oh. Fruit. <laughs> Fruit. Called a pineapple because of the resemblance. Cut. I don't oh, know. Ben, while you figure this out, let me intro Sorry. this, okay? Okay. Just yeah. put what are we, yourself what are we on listening mute? to today, Matt? Why don't you verbally work this out? <laughs> I'm just going to quietly, in okay. dulcet tones, We're, talk about what a dulcet is. This is episode three. Uh, Dave, uh, Dr. Nathan Cartagena continues to expound on the history of white supremacy in um, law and in policies in the United States, um, using, actually, some of the... Uh, frameworks and gifts of critical race theory to do that, which is a legal tool that helps explain why, if you can no longer make racist laws, why does racism still exist in systems and structures in the U.S.? So, mm-hmm. uh, I know you're as eager to get to that as I am, so I, we should just get right into it. Should get right into it. I will say, um, listen to the first two episodes if you have time. Um, they're great. This one is actually part two of a long um, introduction to white supremacy in the United States. And so uh, listen to part one, at least. And then if you have some time, go back and listen to um, uh, the very introduction uh, to this, which is um, two episodes ago. Yeah. By the way, I did find out that dulcid is a modification of dulcet. What? I don't know. According no. to the internet. Uh, but I, I think it's maybe uh, archaic. I don't know. Ben, are you? So anyway, I, I think we were both right. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody wins. Okay, Ben. Everybody wins on the Gravity Everybody Podcast. Everybody wins. Uh, including you, listener. So enjoy Dr. Nathan Cartagena giving us an education.
Dr. Nathan Louise Cartagena, welcome back to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you all. Yes. Uh, and today we're joined by Christy. Hey, hey. And Ben. Yes. Munching on crunch, what, crunch, those crunch, crunch, bugles. Crunch. <laughs> uh, they're like uh, these apple straws that my wife gets. Apple straws. They're really, uh, they're really dangerous. Yeah. They're eating, like Cheez Its uh, for Nathan. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were talking. Nathan <laughs> likes right. Cheez Its. Yeah. Uh, I do too. Um, and uh, also, Nathan likes U.S. history, and we were talking last time about the history of white supremacy. So the first episode we did sort of a really quick flyover of what is critical race theory and why does it got everybody's uh, pants in a bunch, uh, britches, all uh, akimbo. And then the second uh, episode we talked about uh, the history of white supremacy in the U.S., and we only got up to like Andrew Jackson, and so we're going to we're going to we're going to soldier on. We're going to uh, run back um, Andrew Jackson through the uh, end through today. And then our, our final episode will be, uh, so what? what? Why does then, what does white supremacy and the history of you uh, in the U.S. have to do with critical race theory? So Nathan, you wanted to say a quick word about Ben Franklin and a quick word about slave codes as a, yes. as a prolegomena to getting us That's started right. today. So uh, take it away, man. Yeah, so I want to I want to remind everybody that uh, founding fathers like Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, they're they're land surveyors, and they are explicit about seeing the United States as an Anglo-Saxon white empire. They write about it to one another. They write about it to um, em- ambassadors of places like Britain. We read a quotation uh, from Jefferson where he was doing exactly that, and it's important to connect their interests in expanding the empire to their commitments to the doctrine of discovery, which we also discussed, where they're contending that indigenous peoples have no ultimate land sovereignty rights. They're going to argue that, uh, like with Chief Justice uh, John Marshall in what's known as the Marshall Trilogy, so Johnson versus McIntosh, 1823, you get Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, that's uh, 1831, and then you have Worcester versus Georgia, 1832. And in all these cases, what you find is Chief Justice John Marshall saying, yep, we're going to endorse the doctrine of discovery and we're going to say that because, in, in our eyes, Britain had ultimate land rights, indigenous peoples don't, because we defeated Britain in a, a revolutionary war, now all those land rights come to us. And as we saw, George Washington says, yes, this is true, in a letter that he writes four days after the signing of the treaty that ended the U.S.-British uh, War. He says, yes, all this is true, but let's not get into a, a war with these indigenous peoples. Let's just steadily acquire the land. And as I mentioned in our last podcast, he thinks that, of course, we're going to steadily get the land because these these savages in his eyes, um, they're going to die out. So let's not get into the blood. Let's not get into the war. That's going to be way too costly. We've already had a war and we're just going to steadily take their lands. I want to remind uh, the audience, too, that the dispossession of indigenous lands is importantly connected for many of the founders with the maintenance of a slaveocracy or a plantocracy. In fact, one of the reasons why the Three-Fifths Compromise is so important is it guaranteed there would be an enormous amount of voting power in the South, in predominantly slaveholding states. This is one of the reasons why Virginia ends up being so tremendously important for the first, oh, about 50 years or so of the United States' uh, history. Of course, it's still important, but but you think about the sheer number of presidents that come from uh, from Virginia in the beginning. You're like, oh, yeah, this, clearly this is going to be important. But I know this because the... You don't just see white supremacy coming against indigenous peoples. You also see it coming against uh, Africans. And we talked about this, of course. But I want to make sure I clarify 
uh, something. R- recall that it was it was Kendall Noon who said that law serves to organize white societies. And so what you find in the colonial period is the ways in which there's a, a production of slave codes pretty much from 1666 on. And these are designed to make boundaries between those that are deemed as white in various senses and those that are deemed as non-white, and especially towards slaves. And we're talking, for example, about how one of these laws includes uh, that slavery is going to follow through the maternal line rather than paternal line so that you get the construction of black female slaves as a sort of slave-making factory. So you see that this is now connected, of course, in a, in a profound sense to an economy and an idea of how we're going to make money and there's also, of course, connections to Christianity and their concerns, as we mentioned before, about what would happen if a slave is becomes a Christian. This is this to some people is tremendously dangerous because if the slave is supposed to be free in every sense, well, then we, the slave couldn't be a slave anymore. And you can see why that's going to be a tremendous threat to the white empire. And uh, it's important to keep in mind that it's not it's not just as it were, the everyday folks that are talking about these concerns. It's not just the everyday folks that are making these things laws. You even have archbishops, for example, weighing in on whether or not when an, uh, the, uh, when a slave marriage is separated by the selling of either spouse, is it like a divorce? Is it like the spouse died, et cetera, et cetera? So these are, these are common discussions as high up as the Archbishop of Canterbury for a certain groups. So I, I want to make sure that, that our audience keeps in mind the church begins the construction of white supremacy. It begins the construction with the papal bulls of, of the doctrine of discovery. Those get spread through European imperialism. But the church continues to be linked to this spread of white supremacy. And this brings us back to now Andrew, uh, President Andrew Jackson, who we had noted was, was one of the most genocidal presidents the United States has ever had. I, I want to remind the audience that, that Jackson's important in part because he's really pushing for what's known as the Removal Act, so the 1830 Removal Act. So once once Chief Justice John Marshall says, yep, nope, that's right, indigenous peoples don't have land sovereignty, nope, that all gets funneled through through uh, federal, federal government like Congress, well, then you can expect that Congress, when it wants to help to expand the slavetocracy, is going to say, guess what, time to remove all these indigenous peoples mm. out of places like Georgia, and what do we see? There's going to be an influx of slaves that are going to go there because it's an expansion of the slavetocracy. It's an expansion of the plantocracy. I, I want to highlight how wonky some of this gets. So recognizing that there are so, there's still some sovereignty that indigenous peoples have, Chief Justice R. Marshall goes in, in, the, in his famous trilogy says, well, indigenous peoples are domestic dependent nations. This is a kind of wonky legal categorization you find that, that fills U.S. laws. And again, these are the sorts of things that critical race theorists are going to be paying attention to because CRT is principally a legal movement aimed at understanding how laws and legal institutions like the Supreme Court or like a law school promote white supremacy. Let's look at this like a domestic dependent nation. What does this even mean? And I, I know this because uh, in about 2004 in um, Hicks, it's a case called Hicks, it's Nevada versus Hicks. Even Chief, uh, even Justice Clarence Thomas says federal Indian law is shot through with a kind of schizophrenia. Because on the one hand, it wants to say indigenous peoples have some sort of sovereignty because there's a recognition there's got to be some, but but that sovereignty just automatically disappears the moment land grabs are involved. And he's like, mm-hmm. so we got to decide, do they have sovereignty or do they not? And uh, as you might expect, indigenous scholars really love <laughs> 
getting to cite that part from from Justice Thomas because Justice Thomas is not going to be seen as an ally on most things. But even he's like this. This stuff is wild. Well, I want to highlight that those cases are connected again to this deep commitment that people like Ben Franklin had to expanding the United States. So mm-hmm. Franklin, like Thomas Jefferson, was very interested in acquiring Texas and other portions of land that at that time belonged to Mexico or Mexico. I'll be saying Mexico and Tejas throughout at times. So I'll just switch in and out so that so the audience knows. And so you have this you have this steady stream of people trying to buy Tejas or or portions, other portions of Mexico. And and Mexico time and again says no, no, no. Well, one of the people that tries to do this during his presidency is Andrew Jackson. So he's already got the Removal Era Act going. And he looks around, he's like, ooh, Tejas, Mexico, that'd be great. And again, the answer is no. But one of the things that that, that Mexico does is says, well, we want to expand the population in some of our northern areas, so we're going to allow immigration of Anglos into those northern areas. But at the time, uh, this is now uh, 1830s, are saying no, no slaves, because they banned slavery. Hmm. Once they got independence from Spain, they end up banning slavery. Well, what do you think certain Anglo people that want to expand the plantocracy and the slavetocracy are going to be doing? Illegally crossing. So, in fact, this is one of the things that um, what are known as Latcrit scholars, so Latino, Latina critical theorists, this is one of the points that they love to highlight. Like, actually, the first illegal people crossing the border were Anglos going down into Mexico with their slaves. With their (laughs) slaves. So you see people like Moses Austin and Stephen Austin, who ends up being, you know, you get Austin, uh, the capital named after him. They're, They're bringing slaves down and they're trying to get it so that they'll be independents. And then they want to make Texas a, what they call a slave country. And they're open about this. They're honest about this. And of course, they're also vying to see, okay, well, how might we how might we get settled up with the rest of the United States? And this is in part what's going on with things like, remember the Alamo? Uh, it's, it's not just like freedom. That's what we all want. A kind of, uh, yeah, a, a throwback to, to Scotland, for example. It's like, no, no, no. What we, what we want is to expand this empire. We want to have more lands for slaveholding. We want to make more money off of this. And this gets back to what we talked about before with the Monroe Doctrine, where folks are like, oh, yeah, no, we're just going to take over all these Americas. That's what that's what we think the United States is destined to do is the white Anglo-Saxon empire is just going to take over everything. And people are arguing that this is a God given right. They're arguing this is in their blood, et cetera, et cetera. So th- this is part and parcel of the idea about manifest destiny. It's about the spreading of Anglo and Anglo-Saxon white supremacy. So when you end up getting the annexation of, of Texas, it's again so important to see what comes what, what comes quickly. Oh, it's a slave state. Once it becomes a part of the United States, this is all part of it. And then you're going to get, that's the, the annexation uh, and, and, and joining the United States happens in 85, and, uh, sorry, in 1845. And then U.S.-Mexico War happens in 1846 to 1848. This is an unjust war. James Polk is the president. He's been trying to buy portions of of Mexico, and Mexico keeps saying no, no, no. So it ends up that he sets up an unjust war, and it's it's such an unjust war that even even, um, President Grant, who, of course, was a Union general, ends up arguing that the main reason that there was so much bloodshed in the uh, in the Civil War and why it dragged on is it was actually divine punishment against the United States for oh, wow. this unjust war. And I think we talked a little bit about this before, but I want to highlight the recognition from people like, yeah, this is exactly what's going on. And even people like John Quincy Adams are saying, 
this war is yet another effort to expand the plantocracy. If they had their way, they'd, they'd take the, the, the slaveocracy all the way down to Mexico City. Yeah. Nathan, I want to jump in here because I think this yeah. is an important point. Oftentimes when we talk about people like Thomas Jefferson, who, you know, owned slaves, <clears throat> had an affair with one of his slaves, had babies yes, with her, mm-hmm. then enslaved his own children. Like there, there's, there's often this narrative of these are just guys of their times. Everybody was doing it. No one knew better. And, and, um, that's just not true. Like everybody knew better. Even in Thomas Jefferson, some of his writings, you could mm-hmm. he would say, like, slavery is awful. The the problem is he made so much gosh darn money off of it. <laughs> it was well, too profitable a, for him money. to get rid of. So so I think there's this I just want to say, like, for those listening, like there were it was a different time. There were different things that were important or available to people, but but a lot of this stuff that was happening, people knew it was bad, and they mm-hmm. still did it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and, and in fact, one of the wildest things about Jefferson is if you read his notes on Virginia, um, his section on slavery, he ends up arguing something that you, t- you find people like Alexis de Tocqueville arguing, and that is, well, slavery is bad, but it's really bad for white people. Like, that's that's where the real problem lies. And so he's, he's deeply concerned, Jefferson, in notes on Virginia, about the ways in which being a child of a slaveholder will train you in vice because you watch your parents interact with slaves in ways that no human being should interact with other human beings. Gosh. It, 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 this is, I mean, this gets cited time and again in race scholarship, but that didn't stop him from having his own, his own slaves. It doesn't stop him from having uh, horrific relationships with, with Sally Hemings, seven children, etc. No, you're, you're right. And I, I want to stress too that the 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 love the love of money ends up being a huge problem time and again and this is why critical race theorists especially especially earlier ones like um derrick bell and richard delgado uh robert a williams who's of the the lumbee tribe they're all going to be stressing the connections between class economics and race Mm -hmm. because as they as they rightly see race is a social political and legal and economic category social legal political and economic category. And, and, and all that makes sense once you pay closer attention to the history. Like, oh, yeah. No wonder, for example, when Texas has its first constitution, what's one of the things that they protect? Slavery. Yeah. When Texas joins the union, what's one of the things you find in that new constitution? Protections of slavery. Yeah. yeah. And, and you get the language of persons of color, which, as we talked about before, is a way of distinguishing non-whites from whites. And, and I want to highlight the phrase person of color, though it, it has been in many senses redeemed and transformed by racialized minority communities. That's, that's certainly true. But in its historic origins, it's it's a linguistic tool designed to maintain and mark white supremacy. Yeah. So the, yeah. the fundamental linguistic category is white. And then anybody that's not white, they're the, they're the non-whites or the people of color. So we have to – this is one of the reasons why, as we talked about in our last podcast, we want to find linguistic ways of of highlighting the truth that racialization practices are going on without even in our language reinscribing forms of white supremacy. This is why I'll talk about racialized minorities, racialized majorities, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, Now, now picking back up on this land conquest, I want to highlight again the ways that white supremacy is playing out. So recall the 1790 Naturalization Act declares that only white persons – of good character that have been living in the United States for two years can, can become U.S. citizens. Well, after the U.S.-Mexico War, you get the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which contends, it promises 
citizenship is coming to all of these people that were formerly, well, and at, frankly, at the time still seen as of the mongrel Mexican race. Because blood purity is very important to the Anglo-Saxons, as it was very important to the Iberians. So they're concerned about all this racial mixing, as they see it. And they think, no, purity is what maintains power. So look, you got the Spanish, and they had relationships with African slaves, and they had relationships with indigenous people, and then those people had relationships with one another. No wonder this race lost to us. This is just a disaster. And so you have a lot of people saying, whoa, 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 hold on a second. We can't let this mongrel race Join us because we are a government formed by white people. That's what we talked about last time in terms of pigmentocracy. And in fact, uh, Senator John Calhoun, who many people are going to have reasons to be like, well, hold on. Should we listen to Calhoun? But listen to this. He's, he's on the floor of Congress. And he knows that all the people that are in the room with him are committed to white supremacy. Not all of them are abolitionists, but all of them are committed to white supremacy. They're all committed to seeing the United States as a white nation. And so he says, friends, we've conquered many people like the Indians, but we never thought we would let them join the Union. No, they're, they're either completely subjugated or we kick them out into the woods because we have to maintain purity because this is supposed to be a white nation. So he says when he looks down at, at, at Mexico, he's like, no, 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 we can't, we can't have them in. I'm completely opposed to that. And one of the things you find is that the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo gets designed so that the peoples, the populations, the lands can be anglicized before they properly properly join the union. So think about this example. New Mexico is part of the United States as early as 1848, but it doesn't become a state until 1912. And throughout that history from 48, 1848 to 1912, there are commissions designed to determine how white New Mexico is. And so they're wondering, okay, what, what's the racial makeup? Mm. What's the language? How committed are these people to Spanish culture? And it's not until it's not until the Congress is convinced that, they, that that place has got enough of a white Anglo population and that there's enough English speaking going on that it becomes a state. So this Nathan, is you're the saying links. you're saying there, this is there's historical record of this. Like, oh, yeah. So it's oh, not, yeah. this isn't this isn't reading into history. This is the explicit intent that the people oh, yes. who are doing it are saying. And now a word from a sponsor. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, let's get back into our conversation. My question is, does this, uh, does that have, does what happened in New Mexico and how long it took for them to become white enough to become a state is what yeah. you're saying. Does that have Correct. anything to do with why Puerto Rico isn't a state? <laughs> oh, now we're going to get there. Hold on. We're going to get there. No, you're on to me. You're on to me. Yes, no, this is, this is all part of it. This is all part yeah. of it. So you got to understand the U.S. expansionist project and how it shot through with 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 uh, white supremacy. You got to start with federal Indian law, and then you look to see how, for example, people like Calhoun are saying, "Well, we treat the indigenous these ways." So since they're seeing the the Mexicanos and Mexicanas as a kind of mongrel Spanish Indian race, they're like, "Well, we're going to treat them that way too." But notice, notice something: New Mexico, New Mexico's. They have a very different history than, than, than California. Why? Gold rush. So once you find gold in them hills, boom, California, let's, let's get you in. But what does California end up passing? 
the state of California ends up passing the Greaser Act, which is designed to get Mexicanos and Mexicanas out of the state. Hmm. This happens in 1850. So you get, think about it. Gold Rush, 49, 1849, right? Tree of Guadalupe Hidalgo, 1848. Whoa, we got gold. Oh my goodness, it's going to be amazing. Hold on, we don't want these Mexicanos and Mexicanas having it. Okay, now we're going to have laws to deport these people. Hmm. Hey, this, is, this is just how clear it is. And by the way, this is an important time too, because in 1850s, that's because of the gold rush, that's when you're going to start for the first time really to see significant numbers of Asian immigrants coming. And now people are going to get all sorts of concerned. And I'll say a little bit more about this once we get past the Civil War, but they're going to get all sorts of concern because they're like, wait a second, are these people going to take our opportunities to have all this wealth and all this prosperity, et cetera? So again, 1850, you get the Greaser Act. Now, before we get to the Civil War, there is a key case that I, I want to make sure we, we read an excerpt from. And this is the Dred Scott case. So it's a question mm. about whether or not Dred Scott is free because he was in Missouri, he was near Ferguson. In fact, think about that connection to, to Ferguson of, of, of what, 2014. Uh, yeah. So you're thinking, okay, is he free or is he not? So Dred, Dred Scott's like, yep, nope, I'm free. And this is, this is what you're going to find in part of this opinion, because one of the biggest parts of organized forgetting, which is something else that we talked about, yeah. is that people think, oh, the Declaration of Independence was a colorblind document, the Constitution was a colorblind document, all the laws following it are colorblind, that's completely false. So listen to listen to um, Chief Justice Roger Taney, who is the second Chief Justice. He actually opposed slavery, um, but he's a deeply committed white supremacist, just like uh, Chief Justice John Marshall was. Chief Justice John Marshall, of course, actually had over 150 slaves. That, 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 he, he was quite happy with the slave slavetocracy. So listen to this. In the opinion of the court, the legislation and histories of the times and the use and the language used in the Declaration of Independence show that neither the class of persons who had been imported as slaves nor their descendants, whether they become free or not, were then acknowledged as part of the people nor intended to be included in the general words used in that memorable instrument. Let's just pause here. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court saying, Declaration of Independence, we all know that never applied to black people. (laughs) But but it's going to get worse. (laughs) It's going to get worse. It is difficult at this day to realize the state of public opinion in relation to that unfortunate race. Notice all the racism and all the white supremacy that's part of this. Explicit decision, which prevailed... And the civilized and enlightened portions of the world at the time of the Declaration of Independence. And when the Constitution of the United States was framed and adopted. So now he's even talking about the Constitution. But the public history of every European nation displays it in a manner too plain to be mistaken. Continuing. They had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior order. So he's talking about black people. They're inferior. So he's stressing this point. And altogether unfit to associate with the white race. Ah, white race. Again, they're they're explicit in their race consciousness, either in social or political relations. And so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. No rights which the white man was bound to respect. And that the Negro might justly and lawfully, notice it's just being lawfully, be reduced to slavery for his benefit. This is the benevolent white supremacy and racism that we've talked about. It's not that it's not the clear hate filled. It's like, look, we're trying to take care of you all, you black folks, because you're not going to make it without a white master. He was bought and sold and treated as an ordinary article of merchandise and traffic. Whenever a profit 
could be made by it. Remember our mm-hmm. discussion about mm-hmm. profit going all the way back to the to the Doctrine of Discovery paper yeah. pools? Yeah. Yep. This opinion was at the time fixed and universal in the civilized portions of the white race. It was regarded as an axiom in morals as well as in politics, morals and politics, which no one thought of disputing or supposed to uh, be open to dispute. And men in every grade and position in society daily and habitually acted upon it in their private pursuits as well as in matters of public concern without doubting for a moment the correctness of this opinion. Mm. So the Chief Justice of the United States, Justice Taney, says, White supremacy has been reigning since before the Declaration. It's reigning now. There's not a single right that a black person has that any white man has to acknowledge. Mm. It wasn't part of the Declaration. They're not seen in the Constitution as having these rights be protected. No, no, no. And notice what he's saying. Just like with the, with the land use of indigenous lands, Oh, we all knew this was the case. All the European countries have been acting like this. Like, let's not act like this is news. Mm. I, I say this because there's such a robust form of organized for, forgetting that what to Chief Justice Roger Taney is obvious. Most people are like, well, no, this, I've never heard anything like this. So notice the complete, the complete gap, I mean, an enormous gap between the kinds of education that we have And our ability to recognize, as I said many times, that white supremacy spreads across the whole globe and it's bound up with European colonialism. Even the Supreme Courts are like, oh, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. But when I say that today, when critical race theorists say that today, we're we're called cultural Marxists, revisionist historians. You you don't even care about the you don't care about evidence anymore, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going, if you read any of these portions of U.S. legal history, they're not even hiding it. Yes. So, so we're not even talking about dog whistle politics, like like when President Trump goes around telling people they have good genes. You're like, wait a second, is that white white supremacist eugenics? No, <laughs> that was the Chief Justice, like in your face. This is what we have to see. We need to talk about this in the fourth episode because the argument is made uh, repeatedly that at one point we were a racist white supremacist country. Um, so when when this Chief Justice wrote this opinion, clearly white supremacist racist, it was in the law, yeah. but at some point. Some mysterious point, we completely stopped being a white supremacist racist country with racist laws. And, and, uh, and when you press people on when that point was, how did that happen? What was the definitive moment? It's crickets. Oh, yeah. But you hear this too, right? All the time. And in response to it, we'll talk about this more in the next podcast, but in response to it, I know this. I say, okay, let, let's, let's, stick to a, let's stick to something that you, that you should definitely – Keep in mind when you're thinking about systemic white supremacy. The land seizures and the land grabs is one of the reasons I went back to the Marshall Trilogy. So Marshall gives you Johnson versus McIntosh decision. Yep, no land sovereignty. And his his defense is shot up through with white supremacy doctrine of discovery. It's none other than Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg who positively cites that decision in 2005 to say, yep, that's U.S. law. It's still, this is what I tell people, all of the Johnson, all, all of the Marshall Trilogy is still U.S. law on the books. Yeah. <laughs> this hasn't changed. Yeah. And I actually want to give you another another example. So just, just two, two things. First, people wrongly claim that the Civil War brought the complete abolition of slavery. That's false. The 13th Amendment doesn't fully abolish slavery. The exception is in terms of prisons and jail. Now. Notice something else that comes in. We've jumped past the the Civil War. Uh, I know there's much we could say, but we're just jumping past it. So in 1866, you get a Civil Rights Act. And listen to this claim. 
This is, this is from the legislation, and it's still law on the books. All people have rights to make contracts, contracts and pursue business opportunities as enjoyed by white citizens. That's white normativity. That's white supremacy. It's still the law on the books, and that's supposed to be civil rights legislation. Like, don't worry, y'all. You can be as you can be as, uh, as blessed as the white folks. And this is why people talk about privilege, because again, it's a pigmentocracy. It's designed to be a government for and by white white people. Now, I wanna I wanna note that from about 66, 1866 to eighteen ninety eight, this is where you're gonna see tremendous forms of expansion. You're gonna see new forms of centralized government. But though those things are happening, white supremacy is still holding. So you're going to get, for example, ex parte crow dog, which is a case that continues to justify the Marshall Trillion and says, nope, indigenous peoples, you don't have you don't have land rights. In 1876, you get page law, which is a, a racist, sexist law designed to keep Chinese women out. It's like, no, 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 we don't trust them. They're, they're, they're sexually promiscuous. So you get all these racist tropes. By the way, people should be thinking about this when they're thinking about what happened in Atlanta last week. Right, that all these racist tropes about about Asian sexuality—they're part and parcel of Page Law. And Page Law anticipates the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. This is the first piece of legislation the United States passes regarding who's going to be excluded from immigration, and it's shot through with white supremacy and racism. And the thought is, my goodness, we've just finished the Reconstruction era. We're finally going to be able to get white people their jobs, and now we got these. Now we're going to have these Chinese people come in. No way. Er, out they're going to have to go. Now, here's something that's really important to keep in mind about this period of time. In efforts to defend the Chinese Exclusion Act, which the Supreme Court actually vouches for later on, it's about two years later, you say, yep, nope, this is, this, is a, this is a just law. People draw on racialized black conceptions and apply them to the Chinese. Here's the main reason why. Because when Britain ends the slave trade, you look at places like Trinidad, for example, they're, they're concerned. How are we going to navigate Trinidad? We've got white elites, blacks, former black slaves. We need a buffer. So Britain, because it's been expanding its empire all over the place, brings people from India and China and what's known as the coolie trade. It's like, okay, we're going to bring all these people. They're going to be working for almost nothing, but they're not slaves. And they're going to serve as a racial barrier between the blacks, the former black slaves and the white elites. Well, people in the United States are watching this, and guess what they see? All sorts of jobs are now going to racialized Asians. And so they're saying, no, we've got to keep them out because we don't want to have yet another slave race in the United States. Hence the racialization and the beginnings of Chinese people as if they were black. So the you know, expansion of the noses, a changing of the eyelids, making the lips look big, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a constant effort to present them as um, foreign and dangerous. Well, as those people, as Chinese people are being excluded, we're going to get even more land seizure by the United States. And I have to read a couple quotations about this because of how, again, you just can't understand the, the spread of white supremacy if you're not paying attention to federal Indian law. So in 1838, the commissioner of the Indian Affairs Bureau says, the following, unless some system is marked out by which there shall be a separate allotment of land to each individual indigenous person, you will look in vain for any general casting off of savagism. Common property and civilization cannot coexist. So this is what you're finding. This is Hartley Crawford saying the indigenous people, they're so communal. They're not sufficiently individualistic. They're sharing everything. This is a huge problem. 
They don't think that, well, I should have my own little plot of land. You should have your own plot of land. This is a disaster. So the only way we can undo what they're calling savagery, barbarism, frankly, the ways of life of indigenous peoples is mm -hmm. to force them to have forms of private property. So, guess what you get? You're going to get Senator Henry Dawes saying it's time for what becomes known as the Dawes Act or what's known as the Allotment Act of 1887. Remember, Chinese Exclusion Act, 1882. Now we're going to get the Allotment Act of 1887. I'm going to read a quotation, but I want you to keep this in mind. Under the Allotment Act, indigenous held lands in the United States were reduced from 138 million acres to 48 million acres. Let me repeat, from 138 million to 48 million acres. And this is the claim of, of, of a defense for why this is so necessary. This is, uh, again, Senator Henry Dawes who, who pushes for this piece of legislation. He says, the head chief told us that there was not a family in the whole nations that had not a home of its own. There was not a pauper in that nation. And the nation did not owe a dollar. So, look, we're doing well. Back off, white man. Ex no, exactly right. <laughs> it built its own capital, and it built its schools and hospitals. This is not the vision of indigenous peoples that most of us are used to. But ready, get ready. Yet the defect of the system was apparent. I mean, most of us were like, oh, wow, that sounds like they're doing great. Right. This no is what debt. the senator says. Yeah. But the defect of the system. Wait, yeah. see? It's system language. It's power mm -hmm. language all over again. Mm -hmm. They have got as far as they can go because they own their land in common. It is Henry George's system, and under that, there is no enterprise to make your home any better than that of your neighbors. There is no selfishness, which is at the bottom of civilization. Till this people will consent to give up their lands and divide among their citizens so that each one can own the land he, cultivate, he cultivates, they will make no more progress. Yeah. This, this is one of the justificatory reasons for yeah. the land allotment, which gets more seizures, which, I mean, it devastates indigenous communities. Yeah. And what follows this? An enormous pressure to send all indigenous children to boarding schools. And the key mm. phrase there is, you got to kill the savage to save the man. Wow. I mean, this is, it's this level of systemic injustice, this yeah. level yeah. of a vision of white supremacy. Oh, all that stuff is in common. That's just terrible. Where's the selfishness? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Where's literally. the vice? Yeah, there's this dogmatic, uh, man, it's incredible, a dogmatic assumption that selfishness yep. is good for society. And so Correct. even while listing all of these, like, look at, all, look at all, all the good they've done. But unfortunately, since they're not selfish, uh, they, they will never advance to our level <laughs> unless and, we force them to. Yeah, right, John, this, is, this is pulling on John Locke's understanding of the creation mandate. So John, yeah, right, that right. was one of the main mm -hmm. critiques that Christians and like secular humanists had about the indigenous people is that they weren't industrious. They didn't mm -hmm. take the land and mm -hmm. do something more productive with it, which they tied into right. Genesis 1 and 2, as though, That's correct. The, the, as though the industrial sort of capitalistic impulse was a fulfillment of the creation mandate. Correct. Mm -hmm. And that part is key because, for example, one of the, one of the motifs that comes up to justify the U.S.-Mexico war is, well, look at all these Mexicans. They're not taking care of the land like they're supposed to. They're just like the indigenous. And if mm -hmm. we took the indigenous land for these reasons, why not take their land for the same reasons? Mm -hmm. Now I want you to see. Look at how nastily connected racial capitalism is with the growth and the spread and the maintenance of the United States. Yes. This is why 
I'm fully on board with with Cedric Robinson, who who's the author of, of many books, including Black Marxism, where he says this is one of his most famous insights. He says capitalism's always been racial. Mm-hmm. It's always been racial. He says even when you see it beginning in Europe, there's this there's a seeing of the Irish as the racial other yep. compared to everybody else. Oh, we can't have those Celts and all and all that sort of stuff. But it continues on, and, and I want to stress, he's saying they got hospitals, they they, they they don't they're getting along. That's the problem. Because there's not going to be the kind of capitalistic impulse that we need to, to, to again, improve them, to have progress. And it's, it's shocking when you hear this, but this is what they're saying. Now, we've been making strong connections time and again between economics, land, and race. That all primes us for Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, hmm. where you have Homer Plessy saying, look, I'm pretty much white. I only have one-eighth African blood. So let me sit on the white side of the uh, uh, of these trains. <clears throat> Why? Because the policing of whiteness is key to the pigmentocracy. You got to have sharp demarcation lines about who's white and who's not. So what do you find? You find the Supreme Court saying, no, no, no. Anybody of African descent does not get to have the access, the rights, the privileges that the white race has. And so you get the legal instantiation of Jim and Jane Crow across the United States. We'll be right back. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, a 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life God shares with us. It's a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying some new practices. In the Gravity Formation Course, we go below the surface of our lives so we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing. More transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it has helped many to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, Go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. Let's get back to the show. Now, I want to highlight how that is a continuation of the kind of racial apartheid that even George Washington, Thomas Jefferson were setting up as it related to the indigenous communities. But you see, now here's one of the big problems. You see, the indigenous communities were always able to the sort of the folks you can just push out. But what do you do when you have former black slaves, their children in society, they're gaining political power, and you want to make sure, no, no, hold on, we still have some way of maintaining the white the white pigmentocracy. How are we going to maintain this white republic? And you have people like um, soon-to-be President Theodore Roosevelt very concerned about this. He's, he's talking about the threats of racial genocide. We're going to have the white empire just completely collapse, he says. So this is a key part of maintaining boundaries between whiteness and non-whiteness. And a continuing of the, the accruing of privileges and rights to those that are racialized white. Because as much as they're going to talk about how separate equal, everybody's like, this is a complete joke. There's no separate but equal. Just look at the differences of the schools, of, of, of other institutions, libraries, for example. Like, this, is, this, is, this is a joke. Now, here's something else to see. That's happening while there's a huge impulse for further expansion. Makes sense when you see allotment things. Makes sense after the Civil War. So this is when you're going to find the United States saying, aha. We've had our eye on places like Cuba, Puerto Rico, Barriqua, the Philippines, Guam, Nicaragua, 
for ooh, almost a century now, and now we're primed and ready to strike. So the United States engages in a war against España, against Spain. First goes to, to Cuba. So they first go to Cuba. But Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, and so many others know they can make a killing if they get Puerto Rico. And this is important because the United States economy is, is struggling a little bit. And not only can they make a killing if they get it, but then they will be in a key military place to go and protect the Panama Canal, which everybody wants to have access to that and to have it protected. So Roosevelt actually writes to a senator, Cabot, and says, Cabot, make sure that Congress ensures there is a war that expands to Puerto Rico because we must seize it. Cabot writes back and says, like, oh, yeah, no, don't worry. We're going to get Puerto Rico. No problems. Of course, they, they spell Puerto Rico P-O-R-T-O. <laughs> it's just it's all sorts of anglicized. Puerto- but they're like, no, we got to get it. And they end up getting it. But guess what happens? It ends up that Roosevelt resigns one post so he can join an all-volunteer force so he can do his famous Rough Riders, let's take over San Juan Hill. He was that committed to the economic ideas that could come with spreading the white empire that he actually goes and fights in a war so that he can make sure we get Puerto Rico. Now, guess what happens? There's all sorts of questions about how places like Puerto Rico are going to relate to the United States. But in the Treaty of Paris, whereas in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, you get promises that, okay, the Mexicanos, they're going to, and the Mexicanos, they're going to become U.S. citizens. There's no promise in the Treaty of Paris in 1898. No promise. See, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo had to make those who were Mexicanos and Mexicanas eventually be seen as white because if you're going to be a citizen at that point, you had to be seen as white. But no, hold on. Let's keep, let's keep Puerto Rico at bay and let's continue to make it a place that we can exploit. And so when you get to the insular cases in the early 20th century, one of the key questions is, well, how are we going to see taxation working? Because are we going to have taxation without representation? And so cases say, yes, that's exactly what we're going to have. And here's what they do. Remember, Chief Justice John Marshall said, when it comes to indigenous peoples, they are a domestic dependent nation. What do we find when it comes to Puerto Rico? You all are, quote, foreign, but in a domestic sense. I mean, we just, the craziest legal categories get made up. Mm. All of this happening when people like Rudyard Kipling are saying, hooray, United States, in his poem, 1899, you've taken up the white man's burden. So let me just read one little stanza from Rudyard Kipling's infamous poem, The White Man's Burden. Take up the white man's burden, send forth the best ye breed, go bind your, go bid your sons to exile, to serve your captives' need, to wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild, your new cot, sullen peoples, half devil and half child. Kipling's talking about mihente in Boricua, half devil, half child. All of these racist tropes that you saw going back to the, to the doctrine of discovery getting implemented. They're, they're up and running. And now I want to take us home to, to 1955. So when you see all this, there should be no surprise that there's going to be a continued desire to police whiteness. And this is one of the reasons why there are what are known as racial identity cases. And the United States is like, okay, no, look, either you're of African descent in the sense of your, your parents were slaves or you're white. Those are the only people that can become, can become U.S. citizens. And so you have people trying to become citizens, including Ozawa, who was Japanese, lives in Hawaii. He's like, hey, look, I want to be a U.S. citizen. Like, no, you can't, you can't be a U.S. citizen because you're, you're, you're not Caucasian, and Caucasian equals white. So then scenes, six months later, uh, he, he's, from, he's from northern India. He says, well, look, according to anthropologists, my people, they're Caucasian. 
And if Caucasian like, like he's literally was white, from the Caucasus Mountains. Correct. He's like, if, <laughs> if, exactly right. He's like, look, if, 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 if Caucasian equals white, we're Caucasian, so I should be able to become a citizen. To which the same court <laughs> said, no, Caucasian equals white, and, and, and Ozawa, you're not white. This is the early 1920s. The same court says, of course, Caucasian has nothing to do with whiteness. <laughs> I mean, the contradictions are oh so glaring, God. but they're trying to police whiteness. Yeah. Yes. Can I, this, can I, by the can way, I interject something, oh yeah, Nathan, ahead, here? Right. Please. So my, my ancestors came in the 19th century. They were German and Irish immigrants, and they were Catholic. Um, and when they landed here, they were not white. Mm-hmm. Like Irish, you know, the exactly. fighting Irish, Irish yep, need not apply, yep. German Catholics, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I think that the, these court cases, which were the early 20th century, where we mm-hmm. decided, you know, Chinese isn't white, and yep. uh, Japanese isn't white, et cetera, et cetera. Indian isn't white. I think they hastened the inclusion of Irish and Germans into the white club, because now, now they were now now, and we were indistinguishable, right? So after like one or two generations, an Irish person is indistinguishable from you know a, a British person. So, th- so I guess I'm just saying like. My my inclusion in the white club was on the backs of these legal cases in many in, right. in, much, in many senses. Yeah, so it's very important to know that early U.S. early 20th century U.S. law actually has prohibitions against people from southeastern Europe and places like Ireland coming through immigration. Like, no, 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 you're not the sort that we want. But it ends up that yes, as conceptions of whiteness expand. And as things like unions expand who they're going to allow in, but it's always connected to whiteness, you get the expansion of those that are deemed to be white and join the white population. You're exactly right. And that's always presented in contrast to those who are always going to be seen as non-white. Like, no, no, no. Baldwin is so good on this. He's like, we got these immigrants. They've come and they're here for four days and they already know I'm at least better than you. Mm. They don't know any English, he says, but they already know the N-word and they know at least I'm better than you. Tony Morrison picks up on this, etc. That's exactly right. No, so these these cases, and this is something to see. The, the cases both bring in and and, and rule in, in light of racist ideologies, but then they further codify and instantiate the racist ideology. So when you ask, for example, why does the United States look so white? It's because there were laws banning and determining who could be in and who could be out. When you ask, well, why is this part of, say, Arkansas not occupied with more Asians? It's because Arkansas had laws prohibiting any Asians from buying property and owning homes there. Like th- this is the sort of stuff that shapes what congregations in the United States look like, but it rarely comes up because people want to act like, well, all it is is we just need to have a little bit more hospitality, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, no, no, you got to ask what laws made it so that the places that you're inhabiting look the ways that they do. What, you know, what were the things that imp- inc- um, endorsed white flight? What were the, the, fo- the, the, the kinds of federal home loans that made it so, okay, this is going to be a death dealing trap. All that gets connected to these forms of racism. And so, for example, in, in 1970, the United States sets up what's known as the Asiatic Bard Zone. Like all these people coming from these places can't be U.S. citizens. And they makes it part of the Immigration Act of 1924. Like, yep, nope, you all can't be citizens. So it's so a surprise when, when you're dealing with World War II, you're going to get Karamatsu versus the United States. And you're going to find leading generals saying, no, we can't trust the Japanese. They're 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 uh uh, a licentious race. They're also full of traitors. They're only loyal to the Japanese, et cetera, et cetera. So of course, nope, we're going to justify internment. And, and I want to highlight that happens in 44. I, I'm saying this because people look at Brown v. Board 1 and 2, which is 1954 and 1955. And they're like, well, look, finally, the United States is saying, you know, what? we got we to undo some of this official racial apartheid. 
And one of the main reasons is because the United States is getting roasted by the communists across the globe because the United States is concerned about its global appearance. <laughs> these, uh, all these peoples that are part of the colonial project, so you get the United Nations saying, look, Europe, other places, you got to decolonize. So there are some efforts to decolonize. Now you get some efforts to decolonize, and peoples are like, wait a second. Do we want to be a democracy? Do we want to be communist? Do we want to be with the United States? Do we want to be more like, like the Soviet Union? Because my goodness, look at that racial apartheid. That looks like the exact sort of colonial mess that we're, we're trying to get away from. So you find all these amicus reports, you find all these um, notes coming from the Department of Defense saying, look, you all need to rule a certain way because we are getting destroyed <laughs> on the global scene. So you do get, with Brown v. Board, the, the, the end of federal public separate but equal in terms of schools but guess what in 1954 you had operation wetback let's get these mexicanos and mexicanas out of here and back into back into mexico why because there are threats to white jobs what else do you get in 1955 the same court that rules and brown v board and says okay we got to get rid of some of this anti-black racism promotes anti-indigenous racism by saying, oh yeah, Doctrine of Discovery still holds, and all these indigenous peoples in Alaska who wrongly had their land stolen by the Russians, and then, because we bought the land from Russia, have now had it taken from us. Yep, no, none of that counts. Mm. You're not gonna get any you're not gonna get any reparations. So I'm saying this because if you pay close attention to legal history, right before Brown v. Board and right after Brown v. Board, you still see the maintenance of white supremacy. But notice, it's not clearly presented in anti-black racism. So, so many people who only operate on a black-white binary are like, oh, there are not going to be any problems. Mm -hmm. And now we get to the very first founder. We're going to get to the founder of critical race theory because here's Derek Bell. He's he served in, in, the, in the Korean War. He's gone and become a, a trained lawyer because he goes to the University of, of Pittsburgh, goes to the law school. He's working with Thurgood Marshall. He's working with Medgar Evers. He's trying to help to desegregate schools in the South. And he realizes, after doing this for many years, the hopes and the promises we had about desegregation aren't going to hold, are they? Hmm. And Bell does something that nobody's expecting and, and that, frankly, is not popular at all. He ends up trying to understand how it could be that Brown v. Board proves to be more symbol than substance. Hmm. So Bell's like, I've been in the thick of it in desegregation cases in the South. And I'm telling you, I see the maintenance of white supremacy. I'm seeing violent white nationalism. All this is still there. And he's watching as the U.S. Supreme Court becomes more and more filled with people that will, will support the white nationalist projects because mm -hmm. of people like Nixon. And he's like, how, how do we explain this? His efforts to explain the failure of the United States to decolonize, mm. to get rid of all the white supremacy, all this racial apartheid, and to maintain it in these sneaky, subtle ways through laws is the beginnings of CRT. Mm. Look, hang on. I know that took a long time, <laughs> but we cannot talk about CRT without hearing, without without having an eighty minute mini lecture yeah. on why the heck it's why it exists. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, yeah. Uh, Christy, as you as you listen to Nathan share all that, like, what what are your questions? What are your responses? Well, I feel like I need a life jacket because I'm like swimming in the deep end, right? And I'm like, I didn't get this in AP history, mm -hmm. right? And and my guess is that our listeners are probably feeling the same way. I mean, 
wait a minute, like our, our even our history books that our kids are reading are missing, right? Our, there's these big chunks, big conversations, yeah. legal documents yeah. that they do not hear. And then you become 43 and you're hearing it and you're like, what in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, that's my first reaction of, you know, how do I, and, and we're going to get to this in the next podcast, of, but I, the Enneagram three in me is like, now what? Like I want to do something. Mm-hmm. I like. How do we help? How do we? Yeah. How do we educate our kids? How do we? How does this stop? Yeah. <laughs> mm. That's a great question. If I may, I find that my students at Wheaton have the experience you're describing, Christy. Mm. And I've had students that were homeschooled in, in, in elite private schools. That were in public schools. It doesn't matter the educational background. All of them are coming and saying, Professor Cartagena, I don't know what to do because. We're like three classes in and I'm learning all this stuff I didn't know. And you're just giving us primary sources. So I can't even say you're, you're just, you're going to these whack jobs who don't know what they're talking about. Like you just read, for example, like when we read from the Dred Scott decision, mm-hmm. yeah. my entire vision of the declaration of independence, the constitution is shot. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is, this is a Supreme court justice saying it. It's, it's mm-hmm. not, <laughs> it's not some cultural Marxist saying it. Yeah. yeah it, this is, this is hard stuff. And yeah. if I may, one other point, this is one reason why biblicism isn't going to get you where you need to go. Mm. So, so many people act like the Bible can tell you what the Constitution does or doesn't say, what Dred Scott does <laughs> right. or doesn't say, yeah. what what um, uh, Karamatsu versus the United States does or doesn't say, yeah. you know, what what dog whistle politics are or not. Like, no, it, it doesn't give you that. That doesn't give you principles. Does, mm-hmm. it, does it call you to be a people that are salt and light? Does it call you, for example, to, to see that the gospel is about um, salvation and liberation of, of the cosmos? Yes, 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 yes. But it doesn't give you the finer details into how race making yeah. works. How did yeah. racecraft work? How did racial yeah. formation work? So yeah. if we because don't it, know because it didn't exist, ahead. right? When the Bible no, no, it was didn't written, exist right? exactly. Yeah. It didn't exist as it as it's now presented. So I, I'm I'm excited to get to this. You know the 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 next podcast where we talk about so what a little bit, but I think at this point we can actually say one one so what is we can safely stop uh, demonizing CRT as some heresy or some threat to the gospel. Um, in some ways, what you've laid out for us is it just shows that like. Critical race theory is similar to, for example, historical um, uh, uh, interpretation, um, or historical critical interpretation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where that, that didn't exist when the Bible was written, um, but we, we, we use it all the time now as, a, as an interpretive method to preach our sermons, you know, and it's in the church, but it doesn't come from the Bible. But we, yeah. we feel fine using that, right? Like every economic system, economics as a as a, as a study, as a science didn't exist. Right. And so capitalism or socialism and all of that kind of stuff, we do this all day, every day. We, we bring stuff that's not in the Bible into our lives and we find it helpful or not helpful. And so I think one thing that we can safely do is just say, Hey, let's, let's look at CRT on its merits. You know, like, what does it help us see that we couldn't see before? Um, it's not like, you know, the, the, it's not the gospel, no, no, but it's, but it's helpful. It's helpful to be able to uh, help us see things that we couldn't see before. So, anyway. It does threaten something, Ben, but it's not it Christianity. Does, and, yeah, yeah, yeah it, <laughs> that's good. That's a good way to put it. It does threaten something, but there, and uh, this, is, this is what I, I want to get into this in the, in the fourth podcast uh, on this thing, but uh, on this, on critical race theory, because it's interesting because it, it does threaten something. I think, I think the people who are deeply threatened by critical race theory are appropriately feeling threatened, but it's because yeah their their faith is tied up 
uh, in <laughs> white supremacy. White supremacy, and and so <laughs> what's what's being threatened is this sort of way for us to continue to be nice, quiet white supremacists yeah, what's who the, believe in Jesus. You know, yeah, like, the the obfuscating story. What did you call that? Yeah. The if the oh, collective organized forget- forgetting, organized forgetting, organized forgetting. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. Yeah. Yep. yeah. All right, Nathan. Thank you, Welcome. thank you, thank you, thank you. I know there's. Um, I mean, I know this could be expanded uh, 20, 20 times as long. Twenty four part series. Yep. <laughs> That's uh, right. But uh, we look forward to the next uh, chat with you, where we will talk about. Okay, so then how do we handle? Like, I think we we want to know how to navigate this in our local churches, yeah. where we have. People, people who are reading one article from one naysayer of CRT, mm-hmm. and they're making it like, I'm leaving this church if you don't denounce this. And there's <laughs> right. pastors who have yeah. no idea what CRT is, yeah. and they're like, I, yeah. how, do I na- how do we navigate this on a local yeah. level? How do we answer critiques? Mm-hmm. And, and what, what can we do to equip our people to think about this a little more deeply and thickly? So we'll get to that next time. Nathan, thanks for being with us today. You're welcome. Blessings, y'all. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles that we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sturkey and Matt Tevy. Aaron Sturkey edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his work at aaronsturkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the Start Recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.